This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. This book is dedicated to John Frame, an uncommonly gracious man who will no doubt conclude that portions of this book are good, other portions are questionable, but the topic warrants further study. Preface And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. Revelation 20, 8 and 9. As you probably know, Christians disagree about the doctrine of the last things, called eschatology. I firmly believe that conservative Protestants in the United States are about to get into the biggest theological shouting match of this century over the question of eschatology. But there is one point that 99.9% of all Bible-believing Christians agree on. These verses in the book of Revelation refer to the events immediately preceding the final judgment. No denomination or school of theological interpretation within the Orthodox Christian camp argues against this. This identification of these verses with the final judgment raises a key question of interpretation that non-postmillennialists repeatedly ask postmillennialists whenever they can locate one. It is a reasonable question. How does the postmillennialist explain the final rebellion of Satan at the end of history? There may be a few isolated postmillennialists who deny that this prophecy refers to a rebellion at the end of history. But such a view makes little impression on anyone who reads Revelation 20. Those who accept the plain teaching of Revelation 20 must admit that a rebellion occurs at the very end of history. In fact, this rebellion calls down God's fire from heaven, which ends history. Is the whole world going to be deceived except for a handful of Christians? The language of Revelation 28 is not clear enough to conclude for certain that the devil actually succeeds in deceiving all the nations of the earth, whose inhabitants number as the sands of the sea. He will go out to do so, but he may not be completely successful. But it is possible that Satan will successfully deceive a majority of those who will be living at that time. It should also be clear that the deception is a deception of people the battle between God and Satan is for the souls of men. Revelation 20, 8 and 9 is not talking primarily about angels. It is also not describing a contest over power. There is no question about who has more power in history. God does. What this describes is a battle primarily over ethics. Choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah demanded of the people of Israel, 1 Kings 18. This is the question of life for every man and society in history. The answer that men give 
has life and death consequences, as it had for the 850 false prophets whom Elijah ordered the people to grab and whom he then killed. 1840 Just as they would have killed him had God's fire not burned up the sacrifice on the altar Elijah built. But the fire came down to consume the right sacrifice, and judgment then came to the false prophets. So it will be again at the last day. Only next time the fire will consume the false prophets directly, overcoming and ending human judgments in history. Satan's lure has been the same from the days of the Garden of Eden, to get men to covenant with him rather than God, to place themselves under his jurisdiction rather than God's jurisdiction. And let us not forget, jurisdiction comes from two Latin words that mean law, juris, and saying, diction em. When Satan and God speak their rival laws, whose law will men obey? It is a battle between sovereigns and their respective laws. It is a battle for the hearts, minds, and souls of men. It is also a battle for their strength. Luke 10.27 To that extent, it is a struggle for power, but only because biblical ethics is the source of all long-term power. This, too, is a central theme of this book. The Battlefield A war will be fought at that last day. A very brief war. Where will it be fought? What exactly will be the battlefield? What do the words mean, compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city? Are there two literal places in view, the camp of the saints and the beloved city? Is this one place with two descriptions? Or are the words symbolic of Christians in general and the church in general? I know of no commentator who accepts, literally, the idea that the entire population of Christian believers is holed up in one city, even the beloved city. There may be such an interpreter, but I have not come across him. Perhaps some dispensationalist interpreter somewhere does cling to such literalism. In response, I would ask him two questions, using basic dispensationalist teaching concerning the millennium. First, where on earth are the millions upon millions of previously raptured, transformed, now immortal believers who return to earth with Jesus, and who have been living all over the earth for the past 1,000 years? Second, are all the Christians on earth raptured saints and post-rapture converts living in Jerusalem? I think these questions dispose of the literal city view. The battlefield will be larger than Jerusalem. Conventional premillennial interpreters might argue that the second reference could be to Jerusalem, but that not every believer on earth is there. It is simply a representative city. The same satanic attack will be going on elsewhere. The camp of the saints is the whole earth. This would make more sense. Those who are not premillennialists usually argue that the camp of the saints and the beloved city both refer symbolically to the church, and probably the invisible church, meaning the totality of individual Christians. An attack by Satan's human followers comes on those who are true Christians. One question for all interpreters arises. How will the Satanists know who is who? Christians cannot be sure about the true spiritual status of members of our own congregations at any point in time. This is why God requires excommunications to deal with church members who commit major sins. How will Satan's human army identify clearly 
just who the true Christians are? Or will the attack be somewhat indiscriminate? This problem besets all interpreters. However large the army of Satan may be, Revelation 20 indicates that there will be a sufficient number of reprobates to surround the Christians, meaning sufficient to to threaten them with death. This will be a confrontation primarily between rival armies of mortals, not between armies of angels or between anyone and raptured immortals in the premillennial scheme, who obviously cannot be threatened with death. The premillennialist really does have a problem in explaining where all those raptured immortals will be when the war breaks out, and what they will be doing to defend their mortal Christian brothers. This is clearly a description of a huge, well-organized army of people, evil people. The attack is unsuccessful. Immediately, God intervenes, burns them up, and begins the last judgment. The resurrection of the dead takes place. End of history. Curtain call. Boos and cheers from the heavenly host. The Postmillennialist's Problem The Postmillennialist argues that the kingdom of God is to be progressively manifested on earth before the Day of Judgment, and therefore before the Rapture, which he identifies with the Last Judgment. Then how can these events take place? Where will all those sinners come from? The army of Satan will be filled with people who have been recruited from the nations of the earth, not angels. We need to consider several possible assumptions that may be coloring the exegesis of either postmillennialists or the questioners. Number one, does a theology of the extension of God's kingdom on earth require that almost everyone on earth in the era close to that final day be a born-again believer in Christ? Number two, can born-again believers fall from grace and then rebel? In short, Can Satan gain recruits from the born-again, invisible church? 3. Can unbelievers seem to be saints in the camp of the saints, almost as spies who successfully invade an enemy military camp? 4. How can unbelievers possess so much power after generations of Christian dominion? The answer to the first two questions is no. Postmillennialism does not require that all or even most people be converts to Christ at the last day. Prior to the last day, postmillennialism holds there will be large numbers of converts and the civilization of the world will generally reflect God's biblically revealed law order. People at that last day need only be externally obedient to the terms of the covenant, meaning biblical law. This book attempts to explain how this externally faithful living might operate. The question of whether saints can fall from grace is not a specifically eschatological issue, but I know of no postmillennial commentator who believes that men can fall from special, soul-saving grace. Obviously, if regenerate men can lose their salvation, then there is no big problem for the postmillennialist in explaining the final rebellion at the last day. This book is dealing with a harder problem. The answer to the third question is yes. The camp of the saints can and will be filled with people who have the outward signs of faith but not the inward marks. In fact, this is the only way out of the exegetical dilemma for the post-millennialist. If the answer to question number one is no, not everyone needs to be a saint, then this raises a fifth question. How can a world full of reprobates be considered a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth?
the answers to the fourth and fifth questions are closely related to each other. Answering these two questions is what this book is all about. The correct answers come when we gain a correct understanding of the much-neglected doctrine of common grace. The reader should understand in advance that this book is not intended to present the exegetical case for postmillennialism. I no more try to build the case for postmillennialism here than Van Til tries to build the case for amillennialism in common grace in the gospel. I simply assume it, and then get on with the business at hand. This is an exercise in apologetics, not systematics. David Chilton's Paradise Restored and Days of Vengeance have presented the case for postmillennialism better than I could or any other theologian ever has. Any critic who thinks that he will score cosmic brownie points by saying, but North doesn't prove his eschatology, should get on with his business at hand, namely, writing a definitive critique of Chilton's eschatological books. That project will keep him busy for a few years. Furthermore, unless he is very, very bright and very, very gifted stylistically, it will also end his career as a critic when he finally gets it into print, if he can get it into print. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.